Welcome to Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. I'm Dr. Taryn Marie. And on this series, we have the opportunity to hear from well-known people who tell their often surprising, lesser well-known stories of resilience. Hi, it's Dr. Taryn Marie here with Flourish or Fold. Today, my guest is me. We've got a solo episode where we are talking about how we do the work. My recent unexpected trauma of abandonment rearing its ugly head and how I faced abandonment and trauma in childhood, how that's manifested in my adult life and the work that I've done on healing to get here to date. Join me for this intimate conversation. I'm so glad you're here. Here we are, my very first solo episode here on Flourish or Fold, Stories of Resilience. I've been thinking quite a bit about what I wanted to share with all of you in my, in my first solo episode. And that I've been thinking and, and feeling into what's been going on for me for the last six weeks. And I thought this would be uh, a wonderful opportunity for me to show up in the spirit of resilience and the five practices of particularly resilient people to really lean on that first practice of resilience, which is vulnerability, the willingness in our vulnerability for us to allow our inside self to match our outside self, the self we show to the world, to really speak about what I've been going through and what I've been working on in terms of my personal development. One of the critiques, I'll, I'll call it, that I have of development, even resilience more specifically, is so often when people talk about resilience, it's like we, I, I've, I find that we, like the sort of the global we, gloss over all the messy, all the messy parts, all the difficult things, all the things that aren't pretty or, you know, metaphorically photoshopped. And, you know, it's this sort of clean arc of, I faced a challenge and here's how I came out on the other side. And it's, it's, it's not messy. It's, it's pretty crisp. There's good talk track looks nice. We don't see any of the messy, difficult things that happen behind the scenes. And that is so not what resilience is. It's fascinating to me, and I do it too, how even though challenge is the, the sort of formative catalyst for developing our resilience, oftentimes those challenges are the things we least want to talk about or or discuss what's been coming up for me I'll give you some of the backstory here i've been working on what i would call generally my abandonment feelings of abandonment experiences of ban- of abandonment perceptions of abandonment trauma around abandonment i've been working on this type of thing i want to say at least at least since 2007. So for the past, you know, 14, 14 years. 
and I've made strides. I've, I've made headway and I'll talk about that work that I've done. It was recently in meeting with some of my coaching clients that my clients said to me, they were, they were going back over pathways and, and roads that they felt like they had been working through for some, for some time too. And I, and one of my clients just today actually said to me, I thought I should be past this. And that was a real lightning rod moment for me because two things, one, anytime someone says should like a little light goes off for me, that's like aha, because should is a, a word that's associated with guilt it's a word that's associated with regret. It's a word that's associated with shame and should automatically says that we believe that things should be different than they are. The late psychologist Albert Ellis would say to his clients and patients when they use the word should, he would say, you're shooting all over yourself. And so anytime I hear the word should, or I think about using the word should, I think about this idea of how I'm perpetuating and, and propagating these ideas of regret and disappointment and, and shame and guilt through my mindset and how I'm using this word. So my clients that I thought I should be past this. So the should stood out for me there. And the second thing that stood out for me was the belief that they'd done enough work and, and it it should be over now. It should be done. You know, it should be like, we're all good here. I think there's this tendency to believe in, call it human development and growth, that development and growth is like a J curve. You know, we go down and maybe we have a breakdown and breakthrough or hit rock bottom. And then it's just a straight shot up to the top from there. That so hasn't been my experience. That so hasn't been the experience that's occurred for me with my clients over almost two decades. And what I find is our, our development and growth and enhancing our consciousness is, is more akin to what it means to climb Mount Everest. One book that's really spoken to me is a book by John Krakauer called Into Thin Air, where John was invited to climb Mount Everest. And the season that he climbed Mount Everest happened to be one of the most deadly seasons on the mountain, on Mount Everest. And I was struck by so many things in this book. And one of the things that I was struck by that has application to what we're talking about today is the idea that you don't climb Mount Everest in a straight line. You know, I've never climbed, you know, even one of the seven highest peaks in the world, let alone Mount Everest, the highest but what John talked about in this book was that people start out at base camp at the bottom of the mountain, and then they ascend to the first camp. But rather than going straight up the mountain, they might come, they come back down to base camp and they acclimatize for a period of time. And they go back up to the first camp and, you know, up to the second camp and then back down to the first camp and so on. Now I'm no Everest climbing expert, but the the, the takeaway message that I wanted to share with you and what's been so powerful for me about this is this belief on the one hand that we think that our development and growth is going to be this J curve, is going to be this straight line up to success. And yet even climbing one of the highest, the highest mountain 
in the world, in the known world, it's not a straight line. And, and people spend months on Everest going up and down between camps to, to acclimatize. And I thought, why do we think about our development as being a straight line to success or healing or growth when something as audacious as climbing the tallest peak in the world isn't? Isn't our develop, development and growth like climbing to the tallest peak, to self-actualizing, to become becoming the best and most beautiful version or expression of who we're meant to be. And if Everest isn't a straight line, how could we possibly think our development and, and growth trajectory would be as well? That's certainly come up for me recently as I've thought about and, and experienced and re-experienced this work on abandonment. What happened for me, the imprint for me as a young woman was at 14 years old, I was getting dressed uh, in the fall in my freshman year of high school before school. I was dark out, dark outside. It was like six o'clock in the morning and my bedroom was on the ground floor and I had my stereo on playing some music in the morning that probably dates me. So see me after this podcast to learn more about what a stereo is. If that's not your generation, <laughs> my stereo playing. And I, I went over after I'd gotten dressed in the morning to turn off my stereo, to turn off my music. And I have two windows, had two windows in my childhood bedroom. They both had the shades, you know, down, except one of the windows was open. The window on the driveway was open and the, the shades were down all the way. And then there was just kind of this strip where the shades didn't go all the way down to the bottom, where the window was cracked open for some fresh fall air. And it just happened to catch my eye at the bottom of a window that there was a, there was a face there. I looked at the face and the face looked at me. And what looked like a man stood up and the, the light kind of went down his face. So now he's standing just outside of my window and I'm standing in my bedroom. And at this moment in my 14-year-old mind, I'm going through all of the scenarios that I've experienced so far in my life to try to make this make sense to me because I can't figure out why there would be a, a man and a face in my window at 14 getting dressed in the morning. Why is this happening? What I came to in that moment was, aha, <laughs> my dad must be outside playing a, a trick on me. That was my, my explanation of my 14-year-old mind. And so I stepped a bit toward the window and I said, dad? And the voice from the outside was not the voice of my dad. It was a man's voice. And he said, take off your clothes. You're beautiful. And I was startled and terrified and, and had this feeling, you know, as you do, or as I do when I watch scary movies, like the walls were closing in around me. And I, I, I just like ran from my bedroom to the hallway and I was calling for my parents. And I was saying, there's someone at my window, there's someone at my window. And they had a little balcony upstairs. And so they opened their sliding glass door. Their bedroom was on the second floor. They didn't really see anything. It was dark, but they heard in the fall leaves, like kind of footsteps running down the street. And so we made a police report about what had happened. And I remember the officer saying, this is just a fluke. You know, this is nothing, nothing to worry about. And after that, life went on for a period of time. And anytime I felt afraid in my bedroom, I would recall that police officer's words. And I would say, 
this is just, you know, this is just a fluke. There's nothing to worry about. Well, eight months later, I'm 15 now, and it's uh, June of the following year. I had gone out with my friends that day to the mall and uh, gotten a new bikini from the Gap. And I had just tried on the new bikini and I was feeling pretty good about how I looked. Now that window on the driveway where I'd seen, you know, his face, I always kept closed. We had another window, as I mentioned in my bedroom, in the back. I had that window open, the shades open, the glass open, and there was just a screen. We didn't have really air conditioning at the time or when we did have it installed, we tried not to use it. And so I was trying to get the, you know, the sort of the breeze into my bedroom. And this was a window that faced the back of our home. And unless you were literally standing in our backyard, you know, you wouldn't be able to see anything from the street. So I'd just taken my bikini off and I heard his voice again, the sort of unmistakable voice that had been etched in my mind. And he said, I've been waiting a long time for this. At that moment, three things became true for me. One, this was not a fluke, as I'd hoped. Two, my childhood bedroom, which should have been the safest place for me, became profoundly unsafe. And I know many people that have experienced childhood trauma and and abuse have had that experience in their childhood bedrooms as well, where their bedroom, your bedroom, that should have been the safest place for you, became profoundly unsafe. And the third piece was that at 15, against my own wishes, I was naked in front of a man for the first time. Standing there naked and seeing his silhouette on the other side of the screen was terrifying. It might be the most terrifying thing to date that has happened in my life. One of the most terrifying. My parents were out of town and we had a a couple, a husband and wife that were staying with my brother and I. They were babysitting us, if you will. And so I I called for them. I called for their help in my bedroom. They were a young couple and they had two small children of their own. And they happened to be upstairs in the second floor in my parents' bedroom doing the nighttime routine with their kids, with young toddlers. And anyone who's done the nighttime routine (laughs) with young toddlers, you you know how busy and loud and full on that can be. And so I was calling for them to come and help me and they couldn't hear me. And as I'm standing there naked in my bedroom and he's standing just outside of the screen and I can see his silhouette, he says to me, no one is going to come and help you. And do you know, in that moment, he was right. They couldn't hear me. And fortunately, I had good grades. And one of the conditions of me having good grades meant I got to have my own phone line in my bedroom before cell phones. (laughs) So I picked up the receiver. I picked up the phone in my bedroom and I called the police myself. When I think about this journey that I've been on with my abandonment, healing and growth for me is a lot like unlayering the layers. You know, maybe it's a little cliche to say like peeling back the onion, but I think healing and development and growth and raising our consciousness isn't necessarily about that J curve, kind of just the straight shot to the, to the top. 
of growth or actualization, but instead the continual peeling back of layers or, or going deeper. And one of the layers of this that I have addressed over many years is as a result of that experience, my being unwilling to ask others for help because I was so traumatized and I was so let down in that moment that no one came for me. No one came to help. Here I am standing naked in my childhood bedroom calling for help in front of this stalker. He became a stalker and no one came. And he himself even said through the window, no one's going to come and help you. And for a long time, my work there was about not wanting him to be right and not allowing him to be right, to find places in my life where I could go to people for help and I would be supported. And that's part of unlayering some of those layers of, of abandonment. I'll just tell you the rest of the story, which is um, I called the police, the police came. This time I actually went into shock which means from the time that I picked up the telephone, I had and still have no memories until the police were arriving and the male partner of the couple that was staying with us came downstairs to see what was going on. And he shared that he found me crouched naked behind my bedroom door, like hiding. So I made a police report. And then several months later, I don't know how many, it's winter time now, um, maybe my sophomore or my junior year, we had gotten a dog and we put in some motion lights. Um, she was a puppy at the time, our dog. And I was again, home alone, waiting for friends to come and pick me up to go out for the evening. And the motion lights came on just outside on our backyard deck. And the dog started to bark a little bit, you know, as puppies do, but she wasn't, you know, full grown and, and didn't sort of have a full sense of her territory. And so as I walked from the living room back into the sunroom and to see what was going on with the motion lights, there was a man standing in the back of our yard with a hat pulled down low, just standing there. A light snow had just fallen and we still had our, our plastic lawn furniture, plastic deck furniture out and really without warning, he picked up the deck furniture and he started throwing it against the sliding glass doors, ostensibly to, to shatter the doors and to gain entry to the house. And I was terrified, of course. I ran in the, uh, in the other direction and got the phone and once again made a police report and called the police and the police came. And now we had more evidence. We had footprints and plastic patio furniture thrown around, but still really no leads on who this man was. The last time that I'm aware that he came, I was actually babysitting for a family that lived just behind our house. And I grew up in a house on a, on a park and I was playing with the kids in the park, um, three of them that I was babysitting. And rather than uh, exit the park and kind of walk halfway around the block to their house. We just walked through my parents' yard and crossed into their, their yard. They lived behind us. And as the sun was going down and dusk was coming in, I opened the door for the kids and I turned around and I was shepherding them into the house. And I saw this man standing right on the lawn. 
And as the kids were going into the house, he started to quickly advance toward the door. So I pushed the last of the the children in, closed the door, locked it. And this house was an old farmhouse with windows that were, you know, eight feet off the ground. Um, But a lot of them were open, you know, either with screens or without. And so I calmly said to the kids, hey, we're going to close, you know, the windows. It's getting cold. I didn't want them to get scared. And so we went around, we closed, they closed the windows while I picked up the phone again and, and called the police. And one of the kids heard me making a report and got scared. And so we got all the windows closed. We made sure all the doors were locked and we went in a room together and we turned off the lights. And one of the kids had a friend over and we started to hear a knock on the door. And as I was speaking to the 911 operator, she said, well, could anyone be coming to the house? And the little girl that was over to play said, well, my dad might be coming to pick me up. So I had the kids hold the phone and through the dark house, (laughs) sounds like a horror movie in some ways, I walked to the door where we heard the knocking. And just before I got to the door, the knocking stopped and I looked out and there was nobody there. So I started to wait, make my way back to the room where the kids were waiting for me. And I heard knocking on another door on the ground floor. So I started to walk toward that door. And when I got to that door, I recognized the little girl's father from the neighborhood. And I opened the door and he's looking around like, why are all the lights off? And I'm like, oh, come on in. Let's, let me explain to you what's going on. And I asked him, I said, were you just knocking on the other door, on the side door? And he said, no. I went away to college. I went away to university. And my mom called me early one morning, I think it was my sophomore year of college. She probably called around eight or eight 30. I was living in like a quad with three other girls. So, you know, the phone rings loud eight 30 in the morning, which is way too early in college. So I grab the phone and the cord and I go outside the door and sort of wanting to chastise my mom, like, Hey, don't you know, you can't call this early, but she launches into what had just happened, which is our neighbors had three children two older sons who, you know, roughly eight and maybe six years, my senior. And one of those older sons had just been arrested for brutally raping and assaulting a woman in our neighborhood. He'd started a painting business and this woman in our neighborhood um, had become his client and she'd given him the key to her house. And one day he came into her home and brutally attacked her and raped her. And in her testimony, and this is heartbreaking for me and and traumatizing, in her testimony, I recall that she talked about, she was a single mother at the time, and she talked about begging him to leave leave her dead body in the road because her daughter was going to be coming home from school. And she was certain with the ferocity of the attack that he was going to kill her. And she didn't want her daughter to be the one to find her dead. And we never concluded that this neighbor who lived four houses away was the same person who had come to my window those multiple times. But the timeline works out and he would have known the neighborhood well, and he would have known when my parents' car was there and when it wasn't and when I was home alone. And he lived on the park too, so he could have seen me playing with the kids. You can see right to our house from their front yard. 
it's quite possible that he was the same person. And when I think about when I think about that testimony, when I feel into that testimony, I've felt a variety of of emotions. I've felt guilt, survivor's guilt, that this woman had this experience of being raped and, and brutally assaulted and believing that she would be killed. And I somehow avoided that on several occasions. And sadness for her, intense regret that we weren't able to find this man or stop this man before his behavior escalated to such an extent that he got to her and she had this traumatic instance. Um, And a lot of my work, I would say the vast majority of my work has, my personal work has centered around the trauma of this experience and the feelings of abandonment that I felt in being left alone in my childhood bedroom to sort of fend off this man on my own. People ask me a lot, why didn't we move? You know, we got motion lights and sort of this puppy. Maybe why didn't my parents do more? And I don't know the answer to that question. I think that's a dialogue perhaps that still exists that we get to have. And I have gotten to work through the abandonment of feeling alone in my bedroom and calling for help and getting to a place where I can ask for help and believing that others will be able to come to my aid. And I I think I thought I had done, you know, all of the work that I was going to do on abandonment. I think I thought, you know, I'm I'm 50% better, probably even more than that. This man who attacked and brutally raped this woman in our neighborhood, he went to prison for 20 years for this crime. I also lived in a prison of my own for two decades. And that prison is called post-traumatic stress disorder. I developed post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of these series of experiences in childhood and met the diagnostic level for post-traumatic stress disorder for more than two decades from the time I was 14 until the time I was 37 or 38. I was actually through a tremendous amount of work and, and, and therapy and engaging in some revolutionary work through the MAPS program. And it didn't work with MAPS directly, but engaging with um, the healing properties of, of MDMA and other sacred medicines along with therapy. And I was able to heal the post-traumatic stress disorder in the sense that I no longer meet the diagnostic criteria for that diagnosis, but I carried it with me for two decades and it dramatically impacted my relationships, my ability to trust and be close to people, to feel at ease, to sleep, to have a quality of life. And if you've had post-traumatic stress disorder, you have it, you have met the diagnostic criteria. By the way, I'm not a huge fan of the, the title, this post-traumatic stress response is our body's natural response to trauma. It's not a disorder. The response is debilitating. And I think we should think about this as post-traumatic stress response that's normative, that's not disordered. And treat people with less stigma and more gentleness and more kindness across the board relative to mental health, but certainly as it pertains to post-traumatic stress. 
this is something that often stays with people for a for a lifetime. And so the fact that I was able to reduce these symptoms to a level where I was more functional, I was not meeting the diagnostic criteria. I think I thought I was largely done with this work. You know, it's interesting. My, my husband and I, he's a big Ghostbusters fan. We went to go see the new Ghostbusters movie. And there's this scene in the Ghostbusters movie where one of the demons, one of the bad demons is like in one of the Ghostbuster traps. And then the trap has been like buried down below the floorboards. So basically no one will find this trap and no one will let this demon out. And I thought, gosh, this is such an amazing metaphor and sort of visual moment in this movie of like what I'm doing with my abandonment, because my abandonment has felt like one of those like intractable demons. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to keep it in this trap. I'm going to bury it under the floorboards nobody's going to go near it. I'm going to wall it off. And that's going to be how I'm going to live the rest of my life with this. And what's been really powerful is my husband has said, you know what, Taryn, that's not good enough. You know, as you do in relationships, I've worked with him through his triggers and created a container of safety and love as he went through his triggers and abandonment and losses. And he said, you know, my husband said, you created containers that have allowed me to heal. And now I'm going to create containers where you get to heal. You healed me. Now I'm going to heal you. And so I've been on this journey of what it looks like to unearth this. I won't call it the last demon, but I'll call it the next demon to get this out. And what happened for us recently is shortly after we were, we were married, we got a dog together and the dog was trained to be a service dog to support me, um, given my past diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder and to protect me. The dog is wonderful with my husband and I, but not wonderful with our five children. He really was skittish and didn't do well with our five children. And we had to make the, the decision to give the dog back. And unbeknownst to me in that moment, well, I would say beknownst to me, I just didn't know how much. I knew that that was going to trigger my abandonment and my trauma around abandonment, but I didn't know how much. This is the part where I get to tell you about what it means to be in the mess in that moment of challenge before we get the medicine, because I went into a triggered state within about a day or two of making the decision to send that dog back that I could not control. I was uncontrollably crying. I would yell at my husband. I would raise my voice. I would say terrible things to him. And I was incredibly triggered by that abandonment and the loss of that dog. And, and what it brought up for me was this idea that I could be given something like a, like a gift that I could bond to bond with. And I was very bonded with this dog and then it could be taken away and I, I could be abandoned and I could be left alone again. And I wouldn't have control or say when, you know, things like the dog were taken away. And so it's been this really unexpected moment, this really opportune moment 
And given my husband's beautiful love for me and desire to want to create this container and sit with me and walk with me through these dark nights of the soul and hold space for me to go through these triggers and and to come out on the other side and to be reinforced that not only can I make it back into the light through the darkness of this abandonment, but that he will walk next to me and use the tools and resources that he learned through his healing. Now he will heal me because I healed him. It's also been a very elegant moment in the sense of that reciprocity to address this abandonment. I'm really happy to tell you that it's not gone. It's not completely slayed by any means, but I feel more ease, more at peace, less fear, less anger. Some of these things I didn't even realize were running in the background, running a program in the background until I started to unearth this abandonment that was metaphorically below below the floorboards and to get into deeper unlayering of these abandonment layers. And I feel closer to my husband than I ever have to anyone because he has had the courage and the willingness to walk through these triggered moments where not only am I very, very far from my best self, but I'm actually enacting this abandonment, these abandonment triggers out, not just with him, but on him. So we sort of come to the close of our time together here. I wanted to talk a little bit about why and how we do this work. Uh, Because a lot of my coaching clients and People that are part of my workshop say, okay, that's great. It's a great story, Dr. Taryn. How can I apply this to me? And so first let's talk for a moment about why do we do this work? You know, why not just leave that, that demon for me of abandonment under the floorboards and not touch it as I wanted to do, by the way. And we do this work for a lot of reasons. You know, one is to lead a better life, to lead a fuller life, a life where we get to be more present. You know, this trauma, this abandonment, these experiences of of stalking and being watched have haunted me from, from my entire life since I was 14. And they've stolen joy and they've stolen opportunities from me. By allowing myself to do this work, I allow those experiences to not steal anymore joy, to not steal any more goodness from my life. What I believe is what happened to us is not our fault. And we are responsible for our own healing. I'll say that again. What We're not responsible for what happened to us. We are responsible for our own healing. And so we do this work to lead a better life, a more expansive life, a more present life. We do this work to not pass on our trauma to the next generation. You know, I have five children now, three through marriage and two biological, five children total in our blended family. I don't want to pass this trauma on to them. So we do this work to stop intergenerational transmission 
of trauma to break the pattern and the bonds to trauma that exist so that my patterns of behavior and my experiences are not carried forth by our children into the next generation. A spiritual belief that exists that I really like is this idea that when we engage in our own healing, because we're not responsible for what happened to us, but we are responsible for our own healing. Not only do we break the trauma bonds and the intergenerational transmission of trauma and patterns for the next generation and not pass those things on, we break the cycle. There's also a spiritual belief that healing energy not only carries forward, but the healing energy reaches back. And it also allows us to retrospectively, in a way, heal our ancestors and our lineage and those became, who, be, who came before us who were not able you know, for whatever reason, to heal their own trauma. So we get to heal future lineages and future generations and also send that energy back to heal ancestors from the past. Some people have often, you know, said to me, like, why can't we just be done with this? You know, why do we have to keep unlayering the layers? And I really like this metaphor of the potter's wheel. And the metaphor of the potter's wheel is that the life that we experience is the wheel and is potter and we are the metaphorical clay through our willingness to get on to get on the wheel and engage in life's challenges and changes and complexities and traumas and losses and disappointments and regrets and all the goodness that comes with life too by the way that we get to be formed by this wheel of life and this potter of life into an ever evolving vessel of clay while we're on the wheel and that's beautiful and that's ascendant and it's also at times exhausting. What I remind myself is that I would rather be on that wheel than engaging in the alternative. And the alternative, as you know, for clay, for vessels, is the vessel gets taken off the wheel, it's fired in a kiln, it's in a static, more fragile state, and maybe even starts to collect dust on a shelf somewhere. I do this work. I believe we get to do this work so that we get to continue to ascend and grow and develop our vessel and not put on a shelf somewhere and collect dust, even though that at times seems easier or less exhausting. So that's why we do this work. And so then I think, well, how, how do we do this work? What I would say is with regard to how we do this work is awareness is the first step. I got to be aware of the ways that abandonment was still lurking below the floorboards and the way that it was impacting me and how it emerged with returning this dog and to see the implications of that abandonment and to become aware of the ways that this was still influencing my life in ways that I didn't want it to. So awareness is the first step. The second step is to create your healing village to recognize that it takes a village. It's very difficult to do this work on our own. And conversely, not everyone will be part of our healing process. And so really being choosy about the people that we allow to come into our life and to be part of this healing. I think it's important to have a constellation of people, to have friends and family members that are trusted and can be counted on. If you have a partner or a spouse, bringing that person into the fold if they're able. 
but recognizing, you know, a therapist, but recognizing that not everyone is going to be able to show up for you all the time. And having this constellation, having this community of healing, this healing village will ensure that you've got someone there all of the time. Because what can happen when we're facing trauma and loss and abandonment is when we start to go through the process, engage in the process of healing, if people don't show up for us or they don't show up for us in the way that we want them to, or we don't think they're showing up in the way that they should, there's that should word again, it can re-traumatize us. So finding, creating this healing village, this healing community, this constellation of people that you're going to bring on this journey with you is important. And by the way, the most important person for you to bring on this healing journey with you is you. Maybe that sounds silly. Maybe that sounds obvious. I will tell you in many of these times where I have faced these things that feel like the demons under the floorboards, I have gone to a mirror, typically my bathroom mirror, and I have looked in the mirror at myself, at my own face, and looked at myself in the eyes. And I have said, no matter what happens, I won't give up on you. No matter what happens, I won't leave. I believe this is one of the greatest acts of self-love is to not give up on ourselves, to not leave ourselves in those moments, to not break our promises of healing to ourselves. And the most important person on this healing journey, while we need a community, a village of healing, is you. It's important that you promise not to give up on yourself. It was important that I promised not to give up on myself, that I continued to say no matter how hard it was that I was worth it, that I was worthy, and that I was not going to abandon myself. I was not going to propagate abandonment by giving up on myself or abandoning my healing. So recognize that you're going to want a community of people who are going to be part of your healing village. And not everyone in your life is meant to be part of that community. Another step is to look at what happened and to start to change that script or to write a new narrative. I like to say that our story is the events that happen to us. And our narrative is essentially the story that we write about the story. It's how we make sense of those experiences. And through some of my past healing on trauma and abandonment, I've been able to move from an old story that I was telling myself about PTSD, that I was damaged in some way, and instead shift that to a new narrative where I got to tell myself how strong and resilient and proud I am of myself for how I have continued to come through this and to beat the odds of resolving post-traumatic stress disorder. When these moments where we're triggered come up, rather than thinking, you know, oh, I should be through this already, we get to thank these signposts that show up in our lives that show us, that point to the healing work that we still have to do, you know. When we decided to return this dog, that has been a signpost for me pointing very clearly to the considerable work that I still have to do on abandonment that I was just keeping sequestered under the floorboards. We also, in the spirit of changing that story and rewriting our narrative, 
rather than feeling victimized by these experiences and saying like, why is this happening to me? We get to say instead, why is this happening for me? Meaning what am I meant to learn and how am I meant to grow in this moment of trauma or loss or, or difficulty? And to know that you're worth the work, you're worth showing up for you. You're the person who's most worth it. You probably show up for lots of other people in your life. And the most important person who's worth it is for you to show up for you. And I want you to know one last thing, which is that you get to trust the process. There is no way at the beginning of this journey that I wanted to go back and and unearth that abandonment and, and be in that state of crying and saying nasty things and being unregulated and just feeling traumatized and triggered and angry. And, and yet that was the process that I needed to go through to understand this next level of abandonment and to have my husband hold a container of love and safety and appreciation for me so that I could be reinforced in healing my abandonment, that he was not going to abandon me even when I was at my very worst. And I want you to know that as you engage in this work, you are equipped. You may not have every single thing inside of you. You have been equipped to do this work. You have what it takes. You have the savvy, you have the support, you have the intellect. So you get to trust the process and know that when you're ready to do this work, you've been equipped and you have exactly what it takes to create your healing village, your support system, to get a therapist if you want to, or a coach, and to begin to do this work. Trust the process, trust that you have what it takes, that you've been equipped and know that this won't be over once and for all. We're not going to skyrocket to the summit of Everest We get to go on the journey and to know that the journey is sufficient for our healing and what we need in this moment. I want to add one last thing, which is two last things, actually. One is in my darkest moments of feeling triggered and lost and alone, I repeated a mantra to myself that maybe will be helpful to you. And I would repeat over and over again. I do repeat over and over again when I feel scared. I am safe, I am loved, and I am seen. I repeat that over and over to myself. My dear friend, Pollock Patel, she and I have a prayer that we often say around our development. And we ask that all of the things, the people, the experiences, the awareness, the consciousness that is brought into our life will be for our highest and best good. And anything that is not for our highest and best good will exit with grace and ease. And as you continue to embark on your own healing, this is my wish and my prayer for you, that everything that comes into your life is for your highest good, for your greatest ascension, for the amplification of the most expansive version of yourself, and that anything that is not for you or for your greatest good, will exit your life with grace and ease. And know that you are safe, 
you are loved and you are seen. Thanks for being here with me. Thank you so much for being here with me on my solo episode of Flourish or Fold. This is me, Dr. Taryn Marie. I hope that you will share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, spread the word, download this podcast episode, and please leave us a review so we can hear from you. I'd love to hear about your journey through your own healing and what you took away from this episode and how I can help you. Thank you so much. 